Butts and Guts, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring your digestive and surgical health from end to end. So welcome back to another episode of Butts and Guts. I'm your host, Scott Steele, the chairman of colorectal surgery here at the Cleveland Clinic in beautiful Cleveland, Ohio. And it's always great to have repeat guests on Butts and Guts. And uh, very excited to have Dr. Prableen Chahal, who is the program director of the Advanced Endoscopy Fellowship here at Cleveland Clinic. Prableen, welcome back to Butts and Guts. Thank you so much, Scott. Thanks for having me. So unlike last time, we're going to talk a little bit about pancreatitis. And now a lot of people out there may have heard this term, but we're going to start really big this time. So what's the pancreas? Pancreas is one, what I would call as a digestive organ. It helps with digestion of mainly fat that you take in your diet and carbohydrate to some extent. The second important function it serves is it helps with maintaining your sugar level. So it secretes certain hormones. So it's a very important organ and it lies right behind your stomach and in front of your spine. Yeah, it's one of those organs that's just kind of tucked in there way in the back and it seems to do wonderful things and we don't really get it enough credit. So we're going to focus today a little bit about pancreatitis. What is pancreatitis? So I think generally rule of thumb, I tell all my patients, whenever you hear a term that ends with itis, that always means inflammation. So pancreatitis terms mean inflammation of pancreas gland. And the two most common causes of pancreatitis are alcohol, excessive alcohol consumption, and the second most common is gallstones. And when the pancreas get inflamed, the most common presentation is sudden onset of a pain in your abdomen. Most of the times it starts right under your breastbone. It then becomes generalized all over your belly. Oftentimes patients tell us it goes through towards their back, radiating towards the spine, often associated with nausea and vomiting. And with a mild attack of pancreatitis, it's a relentless pain that can last for weeks to a couple weeks. I have patients out there that may say, listen, I don't have a gallbladder anymore and I don't drink. Can you still get pancreatitis if those two things aren't the cause? Absolutely. So gallstone and alcohol, they account for about 70% of our pancreas patients. But the rest of the patients, they can have pancreatitis from very high triglyceride levels. By very high, I mean more than 1,000 in a 1,000 range. And then sometimes patients get, get pancreatitis from a procedure called ERCP, what we call as post-ERCP pancreatitis. A certain kind of a pancreatitis, which is we increasingly recognize in the United States, is called autoimmune pancreatitis. Oftentimes, we see that in patients with inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease, what we call as type 2 autoimmune pancreatitis, kids with bicycle trauma or trauma to the belly, uh, certain metabolic causes like high calcium levels, uh, problems with the thyroid, et cetera, can lead to uh, pancreatitis. And then in certain tropical countries, you know, scorpion stings, et cetera, those are one of the rare ones which I haven't seen in my life yet. Yeah, something we don't really have to worry about here in beautiful Cleveland, Ohio. Yet another reason why Cleveland is such a fantastic place to live. So let's focus on those first two causes that you mentioned there. So what is it about the alcohol or the gallstones that can cause pancreatitis? Uh, on the converse side, we may have patients that say, you know, I drink a little or I've been told I have gallstones. Am I going to get pancreatitis? I think the answer uh, to that would involve a lot of physiology, but I would try to be a little bit brief and broad. I think a little bit of alcohol consumption. Is there a safe amount of alcohol to consume as far as your pancreas is concerned? Uh, answer to that is perhaps yes. Uh, usually anywhere from four to seven drinks per day is associated with alcohol-related uh, 
pancreas damage or what we can translate into 50 to 80 grams of alcohol per day. If somebody were to continue drinking on a daily basis, uh, maybe even a one to two drink per day, and cumulative effect over five to 10 years can lead to what we call as a chronic pancreatitis, which is chronic scarring of the pancreas, and that's irreversible damage. And similarly for gallstones, gallstones, when they trickle down through the bile duct, the opening of the liver, what we call as the bile duct, is in the small intestine in an area called as ampulla. Right next to is the opening of the pancreas gland. So the proposed mechanism is when the gallstones trickle down, they block the opening of the bile duct, leading to obstruction in the pancreas, and as a result, it sets off an inflammatory cascade, which leads to certain release of enzymes, which damage the pancreas and lead to pancreatitis. So you mentioned briefly some of the symptoms of pancreatitis. You know, you talked about abdominal pain underneath the breastbone thing. Are there any other symptoms that a patient may, maybe even more subtle symptoms that can be pancreatitis or is all belly pain that's underneath the breastbone, is that pancreatitis? Excellent question. So most of the pancreatitis that we see in, in context with alcohol and gallstones, what we call as acute pancreatitis, that's the classic presentation. Pain, nausea, vomiting, relentless pain doesn't let up. It's not something that lasts for hours and then it goes away. That's not pancreatitis. However, if we talk about certain other uh, conditions that can lead to pancreatitis, for example, autoimmune pancreatitis, the most common presentation for autoimmune pancreatitis would be somebody who presents with just failure to thrive, fatigue, weight loss. They may become jaundice. It's painless jaundice. To some young individual with underlying inflammatory bowel disease, they may have just localized pain, which is on and off. So the presentation can be varied. Is pancreatitis pancreatic cancer? So the answer to that is no. It's inflammation of the pancreas gland. Uh, but one point I would like to make is uh, if somebody has chronic pancreatitis, which I said is a chronic permanent inflammation of the pancreas, there is a certain increase in the risk of pancreatic cancer development down the road. And it depends upon the severity of chronic pancreatitis, whether a person is smoker or if they are still drinking and other underlying risk factors. The risk can be as high as 24 compared to a regular population. So how is pancreatitis diagnosed? Uh, acute pancreatitis, the definition involves having two of the following three criteria. Out of these three, if a person has a classic abdominal pain, as we discussed recently. Second, if the blood tests called amylase and lipase, they are high, um, at least three times upper limit of normal. And third, if any sort of imaging, either CT scan, MRI, or ultrasound, they show inflamed, swollen pancreas. You need to have two of these three to make a diagnosis of pancreatitis. When you talk about pancreatitis, what you mentioned a little bit about the diagnostic tests, what are they exactly that diagnoses pancreatitis? So apart from the clinical diagnosis, symptom presentation, the most important diagnostic test that we do is a blood test and then uh, imaging. Out of the options for imaging available, we CT scan or MRI are preferred because they give a better uh, visualization of pancreas, which is nicely tucked behind stomach, bowel, etc. So out of CT and MRI, MRI probably gives us a little bit more detailed information, not to mention there's no contrast, injury, or radiation exposure. MRI gives us a little more information about the pancreatic duct, which is the plumbing tube that drains the pancreatic juices and secretions into the small intestine. So given an option, if no contraindication, we prefer MRI um, for a variety of reasons. So let's first talk a little bit about how pancreatitis is kind of managed or treated. Most pancreatitis, does it need an operation? Does it need an intervention? Give me the kind of just the, the broad overview of the treatment. 
So fortunately, even though pancreatitis is the number one uh, diagnosis for all the gastrointestinal uh, related problems that people get admitted to, but majority of the pancreatitis are mild. By mild, we mean, yes, the patient get inflamed pancreas, uh, but there's no permanent damage to pancreas. So we divide pancreatitis into two categories. The medical terminology for that is interstitial pancreatitis, where the pancreas tissue or the meat of the pancreas, if you will, it's all intact and viable and is alive. It's just a little bit swollen and inflamed. The second category is necrotizing pancreatitis, where the damage was so severe that part of the pancreas gets destroyed and the destruction is permanent. Now, it depends upon the severity of pancreatitis a person had. That determines what are the possible complications, the hospitalization, uh, need for intervention. It depends upon the severity of the underlying attack. Majority of mild attack patients, they are in the hospital from three to five days. They start eating and get discharged. But if you have necrotizing pancreatitis, where is the destruction of pancreas, it can lead to complications, uh, which usually include fluid buildup, what we call as acute necrotizing fluid or a walled-off pancreatic necrosis. And if that gets infected or if it becomes so big, which starts compressing the stomach or small bowel, uh, or people get jaundice because of the compression from this fluid collection, that's when we intervene on these uh, complications. So before we get into the interventional components of it, let's just stick with the medical components. So somebody gets pancreatitis, you said earlier that anything with itis means kind of inflammation. So do you need antibiotics for pancreatitis? No, the mainstay of treatment for acute pancreatitis is fluids, fluids, fluids. We hydrate the patients really well. Uh, number two, we make sure that they start getting nutrition as early as possible, preferably within first 24 hours. And third is their pain management. So these are the usually three pillars of management of acute pancreatitis. When do we use antibiotics? And as I mentioned, if they had very complicated pancreatitis, they have now fluid leaks and fluid buildup, what we call as a pseudocyst or Waldorf necrosis. If they get infected, that's when antibiotics kick in. So I'm a patient that's coming in to your office. What can they expect if they carry a diagnosis of pancreatitis as an outpatient visit? I, I recognize that some patients are pretty darn sick and they get admitted to the hospital and it's a whole different pathway and we're not going to cover that today. But exactly what, what can you expect in a visit to your office? So most of the times when we see patients with a diagnosis of pancreatitis in our clinic, they have chronic pancreatitis, which is a chronic ongoing problem. And the most common presentation for patients with chronic pancreatitis is pain. That's at least the first 10 years of the diagnosis. And later on, it's just we deal more with what we call as an atrophy of the gland, which then other complications like diabetes, et cetera, kicks in. So when we see patients in the clinic with pancreatitis diagnosis, it's oftentimes chronic. And our goal is to, again, help, first of all, determine what led to the chronic pancreatitis. Again, smoking and alcohol are number one. But sometimes in about a quarter of the patients, we never find rhyme or a reason. Um, another goal f uh, for me as a uh, pancreatologist and endoscopy is to make sure there's no problem with the plumbing system. Sometimes people can have stones blocking the pancreatic duct. And in that case, we try to uh, come up with uh, some uh, options, either endoscopic or uh, um, uh, surgical options for removal of stones. 
And third would be making sure that uh, they are absorbing their nutrients well. We check them for fat-soluble vitamin levels because if pancreas is not functioning properly, they may not absorb fat-soluble vitamins. So we check for fat-soluble vitamins, make sure they're getting appropriate nutrition, and then refer them for pain management if that's the main concern. Okay, so let's dive a little bit into some of the interventions now. You mentioned a couple of different things out there, the infected necrotic pancreas, the kind of the chronic pancreatitis with a problem with the plumbing, the ducts. And we'll exclude those patients that get better from gallstone pancreatitis who ultimately need to get their gallbladder out and just we'll, we won't worry about them right now. But what are some of the interventions that you need to go, including those patients that develop that pseudocyst that you spoke of earlier? I think uh, I can uh, safely say uh, that nowadays in centers where expertise available, if we need to intervene upon fluid collections called pseudocyst or Waldorf necrosis, endoscopy is superior. Multiple randomized studies have demonstrated that. Um, so what is a pseudocyst? Pseudocyst is just a sterile collection of inflammatory fluid with the uh, with what we call an inflammatory wall around it. And if it becomes really big uh, and starts compressing the stomach or small bowel, if people have nausea, vomiting because of that, or if it really gets infected, that's when we drain. And the drainage often involves a test called endoscopic ultrasound. It's usually done as an outpatient. If patient is on an, uh, at home, we bring them in the endoscopy unit. They are under anesthesia, and we go down with a flexible camera tube, which is a tiny ultrasound probe attached. The ultrasound allows us to look outside the stomach, beyond the stomach, and on the ultrasound, we access the pseudocyst and deploy a certain type of stents, which are dumbbell-shaped. Uh, one end of the stent is in the cyst, another end of the stent comes into the stomach or into the small intestine, thereby creating a fistula communication where they drain out. Similarly, this approach is utilized for an infected necrosis as well. The management for infected necrosis is much more uh, involved and carries higher risk because if it's a significant necrosis, by that I mean if more than one-third of the pancreas is destroyed, that leads to a heavy, solid, dead debris that we have to go in uh, through these stents uh, into the, what we call as a retroperitoneum and debride out with the endoscope. So those patients oftentimes need two or three endoscopy sessions with each can be an hour long. And usually the recuperation process for those patients can be a few months. So does everybody that has fluid collections around the pancreas or is recovering from about a pancreatitis do they need to have these interventions? Excellent question. So answer to that is no. Majority of the pseudocysts, fortunately, they resolve on their own. By that, I mean 60 to 70% of them, they resolve on their own. They may form a fluid collection in an acute phase, but when we follow these patients over time, maybe two to three months down the road, the fluid collection gets reabsorbed or resolved. It's a very small portion of these patients that we have to intervene on. And then maybe a more controversial point out there, when you have patients that do have these fluid collections, do they need a biopsy? Do we have to be able to sample that fluid to see they're infected, or do we avoid biopsying them for fear of seeding that fluid collection and making it infected? So I think this is something that we used to do in past, you know, what we call as the CT-guided aspiration of the fluid to see patient has infection or not. But then the research has shown uh, one-third of them can be false negative. By that, I mean, if even if they're infected, the fluid collection may not grow or show anything. So we usually rely on multiple symptoms and signs. You know, if the patient has fever, they have 
elevated what we call as a white cell count, which tells us there's something uh, like infection going on in the body. We have ruled out other causes like their urine is clean, they don't have pneumonia, their IV line site is all clear. So we check for everything else. And if they have had these fluid collections for a while and now their course has deteriorated with all these new developments, then this points towards being infection in those collections. So it sounds like the interventional way is the way to go. It's a little bit easier on the patients. And if they fail, then they can go on to more traditional surgical procedures. But how successful are the interventional procedures for these different types of uh, presentations? I'm glad you asked that question. So we just published our study, got accepted. We looked at our own data at Cleveland Clinic. Um, I and my colleagues, we, we specialize in these procedures. Um, and in our hands, and this is uh, what happens in other high-volume centers as well, we are successful about 87 to 88% of the time in successfully managing these fluid collection, including necrotizing pancreatitis. Uh, there are some patients where may need a surgical intervention or what we call as a percutaneous drain, especially the ones where the fluid is now going down or seeping down towards the pelvis. That's an area that is not easily reachable through the stomach or from the small bowel. And those patients, they get drains placed from the outside by interventional radiology. And those drains allow aggressive lavage of that fluid and aspiration and helps with the resolution of fluid. And then there are some patients who do undergo surgery, but the shift has been more towards what we call as a minimally invasive route. Uh, hardly ever do we see patients getting a big open surgical scar, what we call as a laparotomy. Most of the times they go what we call as a VARD, a video-assisted retroperitoneal debridement, where they go through a tiny incision made on the back and they go about and debride uh, uh, the dead tissue out. But more and more, it's a less invasive or minimally invasive route. Well, that sounds like fantastic stuff, and I appreciate you leading the charge here. So like most disease processes, it'd be better if they didn't get it in the first place. So can pancreatitis be prevented? Yes, to some extent. Um, as we mentioned, uh, alcohol is the uh, one of the top leading causes. So, And we talked about how four to seven drinks per day can lead to an attack. So I would suggest uh, minimizing or eliminating that. If somebody has gallstones and uh, if they are having symptoms from gallstone, uh, pain or abnormal blood tests, uh, what we call as a liver uh, LFTs, I would suggest getting the gallbladder out. Um, anybody with gallstone, if they're not causing any problem, I'm not recommending gallbladder surgery for them, but if they're causing any trouble. But then again, there are certain um, uh, situations where we don't have control, or what we call as a non-modifiable risk factors. For example, somebody with genetic mutation. So if you have a genetic mutations, there are certain mutations that we check for that puts you at a risk for pancreatitis, and unfortunately, nothing much can be done. So it's very there are very few things that are in our control that we can use and modify. Lead healthy diet, watch alcohol, red meat, smoking, those are the things that we ask patients to avoid. Anything on the future horizon for either the diagnosis or the management of pancreatitis that we haven't covered already? No, I think uh, we have uh, the, the management, I, we, it has evolved. I think within past two to five years, we have gone from um, surgical route to more endoscopic route, and we'll continue to see progression along that realm. And as far as the complications from chronic pancreatitis go, I think we are making some strides. Uh, for example, endoscopic management of stones. Um, surgery has been proven to be superior in somebody with stones in the pancreas. But again, with the newer tools and techniques being made, uh, made available to us, I'm hoping we'll see uh, advances being made in that direction as well. 
Well, that's fantastic stuff. And as you know from being a prior guest, we like to end up with all of our guests with some quick hitters. So number one, give me one of your least favorite foods, something that you're just like, I'm not going to eat that. Uh, Scott, I'm not a picky eater. I'm vegetarian. So anything that's not vegetarian is off my plate. What was the first car that you ever had? Uh, it was, I grew up in India. It was a Fiat. And what was the best place that you said you've gone? There may be a lot of them, but what is one that jumps to mind that you've traveled to? Banff. No, that's a nice area. And so, and what's your favorite place to go in Cleveland? If you just want to go out for a night, what would you suggest? Um, I love um, going on hikes. So my husband and my kids, we go for uh, all the metro parks around the Cleveland area. We've been to each and every one of them. One of the joys of living in Cleveland. So for more information about pancreatitis, please visit clevelandclinic.org slash pancreas. That's P-A-N-C-R-E-A-S. Again, Cleveland Clinic org slash pancreas and to schedule an appointment with a Cleveland Clinic specialist call 216-444-7000. That's 216-444-7000. Dr. Shahal, thanks so much for joining us again on Butts and Guts. Thank you so much, Dr. Steele. My pleasure. That wraps things up here at Cleveland Clinic. Until next time, thanks for listening to Butts and Guts.